Hello, welcome to the podcast at Jesper Baptist Church. We've just started uploading our Wednesday night Bible studies to the podcast. This is going to be our second message in the book of James, and we're going to call it A Trial Teaches. Please enjoy. Someone 
who's a permanent slave. Of course, after six years being a slave, you're free. But if you really loved your master and you really wanted uh, to stay working for him, you know, we all know what the ceremony was. You put your ear against the doorpost, you put the awe, bam, 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 pierce your ear through there. Um, you know, that's not like going down to Claire's and getting a punch. That's a, that's a, that's a little more, that's a little more, you know, <laughs> evasive procedure there. Um, but if you wanted to permanently work for that household, then that's what you had to do. Now, the thing about it is, is this word for the Greeks that these Jews were going out into that they would inevitably share this book with. The, this word for the Greeks, it was a degrading word. It has the same connotation on it that slave has in America today. Okay? It's that degrading because the Greeks, they, they treasured their freedom. And, and, and this word is degrading among them. And for 30 plus years, James resented the fact that he was under the authority of his older brother Jesus. And now, in this book, at the very beginning, he freely calls himself a slave to his older brother. And uh, so he chose this word intentionally. He gladly calls himself uh, Jesus' slave. Paul called himself a doulos. Peter called himself a doulos. Paul called Timothy to loss for Christ. Look, a slave lives for the master. A slave from the time they, they go to sleep, to, I mean, from the time they wake up to the time they go to sleep, they only think about the master's needs. The master commands his life, directs his steps. Think about the work of a slave. The work of a slave is commissioned by the master, supervised by the master, approved by the master, and enjoyed by the master. Now remember the, the analogy being drawn here is that of Jewish slavery in the Old Testament. Now here's the thing, Jews, people say, why would anybody want to remain a slave? The Jews did not mistreat their slaves, or weren't supposed to, it was in the law that they shouldn't. Because they remember how harshly they were treated in Egypt. And so they weren't harsh on, on their slaves. And basically they were treated like employees, essentially. And that's why some chose to stay for life. I mean, I mean the master, they worked for the master, but in the return the master clothed them and fed them and housed them and provided for their needs, and some saw this as a good deal. Some said, man, if I got out here on my own, I wouldn't have the resources to do all this. I couldn't take care of myself the way I'm being cared for here. I want to stay here. This is a pretty good, this is a, a pretty good deal. I couldn't make it out there on my own. So I want to stay here. Some people chose to do that. Now, if you're going to be a slave for life, what's it going to take? You want to be a slave for Christ, what is that going to take? We see a little bit of it in John 12, 26. I don't have those uh, scriptures written out. I'm just going to read them to you. Jesus tells us in John 12, 26, If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, 
there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Look, follow after the steps of Jesus. Step where he steps, walk where he walks, bear what he bears, love what he loves. Basically, live a life aspiring to Christ, almost like a fanboy in his favorite band. He goes to all the concerts. He's got the hair like the lead singer. He's got the t-shirt on that the band wears. And, and just aspire to be like Christ. Paul said it this way in 1 Corinthians 11.1. 1, the imitators of me, just as I also am of Christ. It's pretty clear there who the ultimate example is. The ultimate example isn't Paul. It's Christ. Do the best of our ability, and through the help of the Holy Spirit, we are to imitate Him. Ephesians 5.1 says, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. Does anybody in here today still do something the way their parents did it? I'm asking. Is there anything you do or anything your spouse does that you can tell them? <laughs> but you, you're just like your daddy. You're just like your mama. Mom, you say stuff just like Reggie Martin. Well, I'm not addressing you. <laughs> Anybody like that? You said Anybody want to tell some stories? No, he did say I could tell on him. Camera's rolling. Camera's rolling? Man. Christmas right, is coming around the corner. <laughs> I had... This little, and if you think of something, please chime up. Um, but I had this little recliner. My dad had the big recliner, and I had the little recliner. And they bought, they bought it for me for Christmas. And I sat it right beside my dad's recliner. And man, I sat in it just like him. He would, he would walk around the house in his tidy whities at night. So I walked around in my tidy whities. Amen. And I was just like, just like. My dad, I sat just like he sat, with his legs propped up in the same direction, and I wanted to be just like him. Colin was young, and Daddy would put on his camo. He would go and put his camo on because he wanted to be just like Dad. And this is how we're to imitate Christ, as beloved children. Knowing that we will never measure up hear that comment? But knowing that we won't be able to measure up, but still trying. Still putting our best in. It doesn't matter that we will never hit the mark. The point is the effort. It's pointing in that direction. It's the, as far as we can throw it. That is, we are to imitate Him. This is how we're to follow Christ. In order to be a slave to Christ, I have to follow Him. I have to aspire to Him. I have to imitate Him. And I have to try every day to be like Him. And James is about the layout in this book, how to do that. He's saying, I am a slave for Christ. I'm fixing to show you how to be a slave for Christ. He's saying to these first century displaced Jewish Christians... You want to know how to live the Christian life? I'm about to tell you. I'm about to tell you how to be a Christian. Now there's another word I want to look at in this 
verse, and it's the word Lord. It says, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now that word Lord is the word kurios. A kurios means, and used in this context, it means that James considered Jesus to be God. This is a very important piece of theology to lay out in the first sentence of your book. That Jesus is God. Now the word curios can mean master, it can mean boss, but it always goes by the context that it's used in. In this particular verse, in the Greek, the article the the Lord Jesus Christ, in the Greek, the the is not there. The article is missing. Which, this is how Hellenistic Jews said the word God in Greek. Okay? Hellenistic Jew just means a Greek living Jew. The Jews that live in a Greek world. Hellenistic Jews. So in this very first verse, he proclaims Jesus' deity. Jesus is God. He is Lord. Very important to build the foundation of your book on. It also says to the 12 tribes. I guess that means we don't have to study this book. It's not for us. It's for the 12 tribes. Of course, that's not what it means, although some people try to say that. I want you to remember we learned in the uh, we learned in, the, in our Revelation study that for the first part of the church, that there were no Gentiles in the church. How many years was that for the Gentiles came in? Seven. Look, you've got me for 40 years. Just get used to it. Seven's going to be a part of everything. Okay. And so, yes, for the first seven years of the church, there were no Gentiles. Okay? Um, it was just Jews, which further built on the case that James was the first book written in the New Testament. This next section that we're going to talk about is all going to be about trials. It's all about trials. And what trials can mean for a Christian. What, what, what they can do for us. And we are not going to finish this section tonight. In fact, we probably will just get past the first point. Okay? Um, a trial or a temptation or a tribulation or a test, whatever you want to call it, is a very important time in the life of a Christian. A test will shape you as a Christian more than any other time in your life. A, a test will shape you more than anything else. Let me read for you a quote from Alistair Begg. We mustn't allow our circumstances and disappointments to become the excuse for the choices we make in life. God is greater than all of that. And He can bring you out of ashes. Our trials come, Augustine said, to prove us and to improve us. So what I've got, well, I guess for the next two or three weeks, is I've got some effects that trials can have in our lives. Number one, a trial teaches. 
A trial teaches. Let's read verses 2 through 4. Caleb, who give me some more? Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Caleb, Waterford. So, here, here's, uh, here's a couple things couple observations I want to make about this verse, first of all. I want you to notice it's something. It says, when trials come, not if trials come. When trials come. The trials are coming. They're coming for you. Okay? Now, I, I want you to notice also it says various trials. So that tells me a couple of things. That tells me, first of all, there's going to be more than one. And secondly, it tells me there's going to be many different kinds. Um, many different types of trial. Whether it's persecution for the Jews, in these books being written to is persecution from Jerusalem. But Paul, it was a thorn in the flesh. So trials can come in many, many different many different uh, types, different kinds. But these Christians were experiencing this trial right now, being chased away from their homes, what they knew, their lives were being threatened, they were being thrown in jail, mocked, beaten, and I'm sure some of them thought, man, if, if, if I would just give up, if I would just give in to the temptation of throwing in the towel, then I could live a much better life. I could go back home and be with my family. I could be with my mom and dad. I wouldn't have to worry about getting mocked and beaten and thrown in jail and leaving everything I know. It would be a lot easier if I just gave up and threw in the towel. And no doubt the Christians that James was writing to are disheartened and discouraged and discontented and just all out miserable. And in the midst of all of this, James pipes up and says, consider it joy. Joy. James, do you not know what I'm going through? Do you not understand the pressure that's being put on me? How can you say this? How can you tell me to consider everything I'm going through? Joy. Well, you know, he's echoing something that Jesus taught. Matthew 5, 10 and 12. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. What, did, what, what are some things out of that that Jesus told us? Jesus said, number one, don't be surprised. You know they're coming. Don't act all shocked when it happens. Another thing Jesus says here is he says, you can rejoice because you have a reward in heaven. You have something waiting on you that they don't have. And then he says, number three, you're in good company because the same thing happened to the prophets. 
man, if, if trials come at you, man, um, you must be doing something right. Okay? You must be doing something right because Jesus put them in the, in, 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 in the same company with the prophets. You know, James being the pastor of Jerusalem, he also knew what happened when the apostles got beat. Acts 5.41, so they went on their way from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. Now James would be the first one to pin, the, pin scripture in the New Testament that heralds this principle out, but he would not be the last. Colossians 1.24, Paul says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I do share on behalf of his body, which is the church, in the filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Man, I could go on and on and on tonight reading scripture like this. But here's the thing. When you say something like, consider it joy in your trials, consider it all joy. When you say something like that, a lot of people misunderstand this. He's not telling you to pretend to be happy. He's not telling you to be fake. He's not telling you to put on a plastic face. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying to pretend to be happy when you're in the midst of a trial. All he's saying is, is it even in the midst of a severe trial, it is possible for you to have a positive outlook. That's all he's saying. He's not telling you to be disingenuous. He's not trying to tell you to fake a smile, to be fake, to lie to people, to tell people, oh, I'm fine, when you're really not. That's not what he's saying. He's saying that even in a severe trial, it is possible to have a positive outlook on Right. Okay, so you're telling me to consider this trial joy. You're telling me to have a positive outlook outlook on it. Okay, James, how do I do that? I'm gonna be honest with you. I really don't feel like rejoicing. And some of us have been through some stuff, and we can all say in the height of it, and we really didn't feel like rejoicing. So how do we do this? All James is doing is he's teaching Christians through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, James is teaching Christians that it is possible to profit from trials. It is possible to profit from trials. Look, like we said that the trials come in many different forms. Physical, financial, spiritual, emotional. Uh, they, they can come from your job. They can come from your family. They can come from drama. They can come from lies. I mean, they can come from all sorts of different places. How can we count these things joy? Well, I think the first thing we have to do is we have to realize something. God is not picking on you. God is not picking on you. This is the root of so much bitterness towards God. He 
people think that God is a bully on an anthill with a magnifying glass. And that he picks on people just because he wants to. What we have to understand, trials are not a result of a bad God. Trials are the result of a fallen world. It's not the result of a bad God. Trials are the result of a fallen world. And I will never forget, I, I'm pretty sure I've told you this illustration before, but it fits so well. I'll never forget knocking on doors around this church, and I knocked on the door, and a lady came to the door, very rude, very short, wanted to slam the door in my face, and she said, I'm never stepping foot in the church again. And before she went back in the house, I asked her, who hurt you? She stopped in her tracks. She turned. Her countenance completely changed. And it's like she went from being totally against God to being vulnerable. And, and she was shocked about my question, who hurt you? And she thought for a second and she told me, God hurt me. Said, he took my child away. He hurt me. And that's why I'm never going back to church. And I'll never forget her. And, and, and there was so much bitterness in blaming God. And my heart went out to this woman because I know that she may have kinds of happiness in her life, but she will never experience joy with the root of bitterness sticking out of her life. It's impossible. She can never experience it. See, when we stop blaming God, we can turn to Him in the midst of the trial because He's a source of joy. See, if you're in a trial and you blame God and He's a source of joy, but because you're blaming Him, you don't turn to Him, you just cut off your source. You can't get any joy now because you've got your back turned on God. See, here's the, He's a source of joy. So when we blame God in the midst of a trial, we cut ourselves off from the supply of joy because He is the source of joy. We all know happiness is temporal. We all know happiness goes up and down. And we all know happiness depends on your circumstances. But if you are rooted in Jesus, joy is a constant. Is a constant. James is teaching Christians. When you are in Christ Jesus and you are rooted in Him, it is possible for you to have joy in the midst of a trial. Now, that doesn't mean you're always going to smile. It doesn't mean you're always going to say how to do and dance a jig. That's not what it means. Joy is deeper than surface happiness. Okay? When you are in a trial... You don't have to put on a plastic face. You don't, you, you don't have to, to be fake. But you can say, you know what? Yes, I am going through something right now. But my joy is in Jesus, not in my circumstances. Be honest. Don't, don't be fake. Don't, don't feel that you have to keep, because that's a lot of pressure, to keep up this front. When and behind the scenes you're getting hit in the gut, but the whole time you've got to hold up this front. And we are here to help each other. We are here to love each other. 
man, if you're going through something, let me know. I mean, it's one thing to share a burden with someone. It's another thing to complain all the time. We'll get to that later in a minute. But, man, share burdens with each other. That's, what, that's why God set this thing up this way. For us to share and help in, in the midst of a trial. So you can tell someone, I'm going through something right now, but my joy is not in my circumstances. My joy is in Jesus. And Jesus is constant. And Jesus never changes. We're going to read you a couple verses. Psalm 34, 15. The eyes of the Lord are towards the righteous, and his ears are open to their cry. Man, you know, he hears you. When you're going through a rough time, you cry out to him. How often do we miss that? Day or night, he is listening to you. I've been in situations before where I was like, man, it's the middle of the night. I wish I had somebody to talk to, and I forget I have somebody I can always talk to. I've forgotten that before. I thought about it later. Man, I should have prayed. I should have talked to God. Isaiah 41.10 Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not anxiously look about you. For I am your God. I will strengthen you. Surely I will help you. Surely I will hold up. I will uphold you with my righteous hand. You know what the word that jumped out at me in that verse was? It was the word surely. Surely. You know, uh, look, it jumps out at me. It's almost like he's saying, didn't you know that my help was a given? Didn't you realize that? Didn't you know already that I was going to help you? Didn't you realize that I already had a plan to fix this before it happened to you? A lot of times we, we, we don't understand that. And God says, look, when my child gets hurt, I am going to be there. I surely, I am going to be there to bandage the wound and kiss the boo-boos. I will never forget. We were over, we were over here eating. That one Sunday morning, we were having, having dinner. We heard them doors slamming, pow, pow, pow. And all of us adults knew in the back of our head that that was going to lead to something bad. But before we could do anything, we heard slam. We heard Zane Michael cry out. And what, what Jay and, and Whitney didn't do is sit here and say, We told you so! They didn't do that. They got up and they ran in there as fast as they could. Why? Because they loved their child. They loved their kid. And I think a lot of times, we underestimate the love of God. We underestimate. If you love your child that much, how much more does God, who is love, love us? We underestimate his love constantly. And this is one of my favorites. Psalms 46.1 God 
is our refuge and strength. A very present help in trouble. A very present help. Not just present, very present. He's been there the whole time. What does very present mean? And you know what I was thinking about? We all have these stories. Everybody knows someone like this. They go to the hospital, they're there visiting somebody, or they're there for a test. And while they're there taking this test, they have a big medical problem. Let's say it's a heart attack. They're in there, getting some blood work done, they have a heart attack, rushing into the ER. When everything's said and done, the doctor comes up to the person in the hospital and says, this was a massive heart attack. And if you had not been in the hospital, you would not have made it. You were in the perfect place for this to happen. Their help was very present. When you are a Christian, you are always in the hospital. How much worse would this trial have been in your life if you weren't a Christian? If you didn't have the Holy Spirit inside of you? God is our very present help. We are a child of God. We are saved, born again Christian. The Holy Spirit dwells inside of us. When you are a Christian, you are always in the hospital. As soon as you have an issue, God is always the first one on the scene. Now, whether you acknowledge Him or not, whether you ask Him for help or not, is on you. But He's always the first one there. He is our very present help. Verse 3, <coughs> this lays out some more of this. Knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Now, a lot of translations say patience. And while that is correct, it is a correct translation, perhaps a better translation or a better word would be endurance. Because the idea is, is that you're not waiting in a waiting room. I hate to wait. If you wanted me there at 2 o'clock, if you weren't going to see me to 4, why didn't you have me there at 4 o'clock? Why did I have to wait an hour and a half in the waiting room and to wait an hour in the doctor's office for the nurse to come see me and then another 30 minutes for the doctor to come see me? Can't stand waiting in your Lord, please, I'm sorry. Can you give me a back on the word All right, so if you show up late, they want to charge you for being late. Exactly. But it's not the idea of waiting and wearing it. It's, it's this idea of enduring a marathon. It's not like you're sitting passively in a waiting room. You are running a marathon. You are putting your blood, sweat, tears. You're putting your effort, your energy, Everything is going into this, and it's draining you, and it's taxing your system, and it's definitely not like you're scrolling on Facebook waiting in a waiting room. You are running a marathon. And I want you to also see that the testing does not produce faith. What produces faith? So then faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. The Word of God is what produces faith. So, you see, faith is built in us as we hear and understand the Word of God. 
What a trial does is a trial reveals how much faith you already have. A trial reveals how much faith you already have. If you lack faith, you will fail. But if you have enough faith, you will endure. So you better make sure going into a trial you have enough faith. Meaning that you've spent sufficient time with the word of God to build that faith. I also want you to notice the exponential growth. See, as you go on, it produces more and more endurance as time goes on. That word produces, it's an ongoing action. Okay? So, so look, a trial is going to hit you. And here's the thing. That trial is either going to hit you in faith or it's going to hit you in doubt. And, and, and you will either believe that God will, will see you through it or you're going to doubt God. One of the two. And now look at that trial against me and I have faith and not doubt then I can count it for joy. Then I have a positive outlook on it. And it will produce in me the endurance needed to see me through it. However, if that trial hits me, and instead of counting it for joy, I get bitter. And instead of having a positive outlook, I get pessimistic, or I get cynical about it. Well, then I just started doubting. And I, I, I started doubting instead of having faith, and I've kind of kind of set myself up for failure. Because now I'm not going to have the endurance to see me through it. I'm going to fail that test because I doubt it. You see, having faith in a trial will help you endure. And what will happen, I'll, I'll fail. I'll quit. I'll, I'll walk away from God. I sat across from a man this week in tears. Talked to me about how the wife cancer and they had to take out her teeth and her tongue and her voice box. Last year he lost his 13 year old grandson and he was just having a rough time. He opened up his Bible and read this verse. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. How easy would it have been for him to get bitter? How easy would it have been See, the world can't understand this. The world doesn't understand how a Christian can have comfort and peace and joy in the midst of something like this. It's something they cannot know. They can't know it unless they become a child of God. Verse 4. And let this endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Okay, when you have endurance, that in turn means you're going to have to endure. You're going to have to be patient 
It might take a while before you see the end of, uh, of the tunnel. It might take a while before you see the light at the end of the tunnel. You might be under pressure for a while. But the thing is, we, 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 really, don't, we really don't know our character until we're under pressure, do we? We really don't know who we really are until we're under pressure. So trials actually teach us a lot about ourselves, don't they? They really teach us where we stand and how much faith we really have. Uh, I've been reading Joshua this week, and then we went into Judges, and one of the things that jumped out to me is I read how God did not, uh, did not allow Joshua to kill all of the Canaanites. He, he, he didn't allow it, and then God gave the reason for Joshua, for him not letting Joshua kill these Canaanites. And one of the reasons was to teach the Israelites how to fight. Because some of them had never fought. So it was to teach them how to fight for themselves. But probably, probably the biggest main reason he left them in there was to test Israel's faith. That's why he did it. It was a test. And they would pass. Or, 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 or they would pass or fail this test depending on if they turn back to God or not. Now it's the book of Judges, so you know they didn't turn back to God. But that, but, but that still doesn't, uh, that still they would pass or fail this test on if they turn back to God or not. And a test will peel back a facade. A test will take off a mask. It will reveal a phony and it will show us what's really underneath. You see these shows where they put the mask on and they go to pull off and they're like, oh, that's not a mask, that's my real face. Man, I'm going to be like that. Try to pull my mask off and there's not one there. But you know what? What I'm about to say here flies in the face of prosperity gospel preachers. Don't, don't tell Joel I said this. Okay? God's main goal is not to keep you from pain. That's not His main goal, obviously. His main goal is not to keep us from pain. His goal is to mature us. His goal is to grow us. His goal is to make us complete. The word perfect in this verse, it means mature. And instead of complaining about our problems, we should look at our problems as an opportunity to grow. Just like a, a, a tree in the wind, the wind makes the roots go deeper. The battles prepare you for the wars. So the greatest teachers and ministers in the church today are the ones who survived a hard time. Because they can help more people going through the same things. Look, when you're in the middle of a trial, as you lean into God, you lean into Him during a hard time, and in the middle of that time, while you're leaning into God, you're digging for nuggets of truth in the Word of God, and what's happening is your well is getting deeper. Your well is, is, is getting deeper. And, and now the next time you go through a trial, you've got a deeper well to pull from. You're being equipped. 
You're being where you're not lacking anything. And the next time your fellow brother or sister go into a trial, and you're familiar with it because you've been through that, now you can dig into your well and help them. So even in a trial, as you're leaning into God and you're digging in the Word of God, your well is getting deeper and deeper. So the next time the trial comes along, you will be better prepared to handle it. The people, there are some people who went through Katrina that were very more prepared for Ida than if they hadn't have been through Katrina. Because a wise person knows how to prepare for the storm. And, and he equips us to handle it. And in, in that trial, you will lack nothing. And if you do, ask, ask God and he will freely give it to you. <coughs> Sometimes a trial can feel like a prison. It can feel like shackles. There's a couple things I want you to remember. Paul's sweetest epistles were written for prison cells. Revelation of John was written in exile. Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress was written in Bedford Jail. Martin Luther translated the German Bible in exile in Warburg Castle in Germany. So, so don't, don't, we never know what's going to meet us on the other side of that storm. We never know what's going to meet us on the other side of that trial. Look, thank God, instead of complaining about the rough times to God, thank God for being there for you in the rough times. Ask Him to help solve your problems. Ask Him to give you the strength to endure. But you've got to be patient. God's not going to leave you alone. He's very present. He was the first one on the scene. He's the one that has the plan to make you better. And a trial can teach us how to be a better Christian. This is a how-to book on being Christians. And the first thing James says, what you're experiencing right now can actually help you be a better Christian. This the first thing he tells me. This is an anonymous quote. It is only by going through difficulties that we become strong. By opening up to love when we are facing such trials, we can understand that we are not alone, but have the unconditional support that we need from angels. John Newton wrote this. Trials are medicines which our gracious and wise physician prescribes because we need them. And he proportions the frequency and weight of them to what case he requires. Let us trust his skill and thank him for his prescription. The bottom line is that a trial teaches you. A trial produces endurance. It grows you. It equips you to where you're lacking nothing. There's a young woman named Ann Steele. She had disappointment after disappointment after disappointment in her life. The age of three, her mother died. The age of 19, she had a severe hip injury, which in that day and time made her an invalid. But she found love and she found a man that she was going to marry. 
and her fiance, they got engaged. One day before their wedding, her fiance drowned. Now, Miss Steele was a devout Christian, and she later penned, <coughs> penned, these, penned this song. Father, what heir of earthly bliss thy sovereign will denies. Accept it at thy throne of grace. Let this petition rise. Give me a calm, a thankful heart, free from every murmur. The blessing of thy grace impart, and make me to live to thee. Christian, trials are bad. Consider it joy. Because it can actually draw you closer to the Savior and make you a better Christian. Let's pray. The grace is Heavenly Father. Lord, I pray that you be with us tonight. Lord, I don't know if anybody's going through a trial, but I know we are all in the middle of one or about to go in one. And I pray that you would just help us. Help us to understand the benefits of a trial. And while it's not that we rejoice because of the trial, we rejoice that you are there to hold our hand for it. Help us to be better Christians. <clears throat> In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Mm -hmm. All right, go ahead. <clears throat>